I think this is actually a way that many of us would want to be remembered. Go back and have your childhood friends, your sister, say, the Tim Keller of today is that same older brother who always looked out for me, who taught me how to ride a bike. But he went from being that that small oak tree to being a mighty one. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. How do you measure a life? I mean, when you go to a funeral and you hear about the deceased's life, how do you measure them? Whether their life was well-lived? Is it about the things that they've done? Or maybe it was the people that they knew. Now, that may not be it, because chances are the people that have made the biggest difference in your life, I bet, were probably not those who occupied a very large stage. In the world's eyes, that is. They were those who loved you well. Those that were closest to you, those that believed in you, those who loved you, those who cared for you, those who were there for you when you needed them most. But there are those rare figures in the public arena, whose life does affect and shape our own. We may not have had the personal relationship with them as we have with others. Nevertheless, their lives have shaped ours. And when I encounter figures like that, I always want to know what shaped them. Are they so different than me? What was it about them? Was it their family? Was it their natural talent? Was it the school they went to? Was it the region they grew up in? I mean, it's really all the above. As human beings, we're a complex people, and we're influenced by many things. From our upbringing, to our temperament, from our family dynamics, to the schools we go to, and the people we meet along the way. My mentor used to say that you'll be no different than you are now, depending upon three things. The choices you make, the people you know, and the books you read. I've actually found that to be incredibly true. And that's why I'm super excited about today's episode. It's because this man's writings have had a profound impact upon me, and perhaps you may say the same as well. Today, we're going to be talking about Tim Keller. Tim Keller is one of evangelicalism's best-known pastors in the early 21st century. He's the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the middle of Manhattan and also the celebrated author of The Reason for God, Counterfeit Gods, The Meaning of Marriage, Prayer, Forgive, and many, many more. Keller helped to found the Gospel Coalition, has spoken to Google, top universities around the world, and so much more. He's a picture of humility and the desire to put Christ first. He's retired now, and he's currently battling pancreatic cancer, and we pray him well. But today, I'm talking with Colin Hansen the longtime editor at TGC, the Gospel Coalition, author himself and colleague of Keller about his new book, Timothy Keller, His Spiritual and Intellectual Formation. We've never had a conversation about a biography before, and certainly not one about a living person. But Keller's influence has not just been wide, it's been significant on us as a team, actually this entire ministry. In many ways, we're trying to follow the path that Keller outlines in his mini book, How to Win the West Again. If you don't know much about Keller, I hope this conversation will serve as a good introduction for you. And I really, really do recommend the book because it's a book about hope, a hope that we're not stuck in our present circumstances. It's a hope that God will reveal himself and transform lives. That's what we're about, partnering with God to help others discover how to best fulfill the mission that God has for them in their worlds. See, that's why we exist at Apollos Watered. We want to renew the church by teaching and training engaged believers to rethink, reimagine, and redeploy their pursuit of Christ's mission in all of life. And Keller helps us to do just that. We've heard from so many ministry leaders and influencers who have told us about how God has used different episodes of our podcast to inspire them. 
like our conversation with Marcus Warner about the book that he wrote with Jim Wilder entitled Rear Leadership. In fact, one denominational leader told me that he had those two episodes sent to all of the leaders he works with across an entire region of the United States in order to help them to do the mission God has for them. I want to thank Glenn for that support. We hope and pray that this episode will do more of the same. But before we get into our conversation with Colin, we can't provide you with the watering voices of the faith without your help. We need your financial support. Go to apolloswater.org and click the support us button. Or if it's just easier, click the link in your show notes. That's how easy it is. And by doing that, you're becoming a waterer to the world. You're actually standing in the dry places, pouring out the water of life to bring water where life is languishing. Now, let's get to our conversation with Colin Hansen. Happy listening. Colin Hansen, welcome to Apollo's Water. Yeah, glad to be here. That's exciting. <laughs> That's not what you said you were going to say. You tell them what you were going to say in the walkthrough. What, what has happened to my life? How did I end up here? <laughs> I like that better. <laughs> That's a lot funnier. <laughs> okay. I, I mean, I, I've kept up with you a little bit over the years, and we both went to Trinity. Uh, we were there at the same time, didn't even know each other. So, but here's the, the fast five. Are you ready for the fast five? The best team in college football, in your opinion, is? Always Alabama. Roll time. Oh, gosh. See, I was hoping that you were in, like, did not become an Alabama fan. It's like or, a disease. Or Northwestern, but I can't claim right now that they're the best <laughs> team in college football. So They have a football team? <laughs> <laughs> we've, been, we've been good. Don't knock us, but not lately. Not lately. Okay. Number two, you're also from South Dakota. And I know you're from kind of a farming background, right? So, because I am too. So let me ask you this. What's the best tractor company? Oh, well, I mean, my dad's kind of going back and forth, but he's a deer guy now. So he's a John Deere guy. He's, he's, oh. he's, he's riding green. What was he before? Uh, whatever he could afford. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, we, were, we had some, we had some, uh, white, I mean, it's kind of confusing white tractors, but they were gray. So that's kind of confusing, but we had some old, old KSIH. I mean, we had all sorts of different options, but yeah, yeah. We, whatever he could fix up <laughs> to make run. <laughs> so my dad was a tractor puller. Uh, oh, I know the tractor, tractor pulls too. There's the first podcast when anybody's ever asked me about tractor pulling. Woo! That's how we roll, Colin. That's how we roll. So I my used dad, to do my dad fundraisers was... for the, at tractor pulls. Go ahead. Seriously. Yeah. Fundraisers at tractor pulls. What do you well, fund for the JCs? I mean, you're doing the, somebody's got to sell all the barbecue oh, yeah, sandwiches yeah. and everything. So <laughs> my parents at tractor pulls. Mel, the egg teacher is a professional tractor pull uh, caller. Is he? Announcer. Wow. So are you big in FFA? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Star chapter farmer, star green hand. We get state, state FFA degree, all that kind of stuff. You've interviewed a lot of people, but the person that you have most wanted to meet and never have, but you want to meet and you haven't yet is who and why? Okay. um, So... So they need to be alive. <laughs> they need to be alive. <laughs> okay. Cause my answer is always going to be Abraham Lincoln on that one. Um, uh-huh. You know, I, I would love to interview George W. Bush. Oh. That would be an interesting conversation. I mean, of course, with the Keller book, I've written a lot about 9-11. Those are my first professional years, my college years, all that sort of stuff. Like those were, I mean, that his administration ran from the middle of my undergraduate through my first through seminary. And so, and I was covering a lot of that different stuff. And so I just never had a chance to interview him. And that would be pretty interesting. I think if it were a candid interview, what would you ask him? Hey, what do you want to know? Um, well, I think I would just be interested to ask leadership lessons because how many people do you know who have been at the total height and total low? Mm. You know, like president Obama didn't ever he didn't ever have the heights in terms of the kind of the challenges of 9-11 and a surge of patriotism and, and things like that. But he didn't also have the lows of the Great Recession, the Iraq War and everything like that. And so I always say to, to pastors and other leaders that you're, you're not ready until you've failed. So I'd be very interested to know what he 
what he reflects on from his failures. And it's also interesting that the two presidents who in my lifetime, former presidents who are most revered were Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush, both of whom lost their reelections. Mm. So, which is pretty rare. I mean, it happened this last time in 2020, but, but it's been pretty rare in recent history. So I, that's just, it's interesting to think, hmm. I mean, even when everything goes wrong, I mean, he pushed his last president to win the popular vote as a Republican. Mm-hmm. And been since 2004, since that's happened. So, I mean, he's experienced a different stuff, but I, I like to talk to leaders who have failed mm. um, and what they've learned from that. <laughs> Is that so, what you can call that episode? By the yeah. way, welcome to leaders who have failed. And today, <laughs> well, I mean, every, every leader has failed, <laughs> I mean, it's but it's the, ones, it's, it's the ones who acknowledge it that you could actually learn from. <laughs> but I mean, it just sounds like between two ferns, like, you know, like welcome to failure in leadership. Why, why, were you so, why were you so bad as president? <laughs> oh. okay. It wasn't in some ways, but like right. I said, it would depend right. on if it was a candid, uh, candid, you know, interview, interview conversation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I understand that. Oh, number four, here's the fourth question. The thing most people don't get about South Dakota is um that we're not north dakota <laughs> i mean i'm telling you i've got about a 75 percent rate of saying of them saying where'd you grow up and i say south dakota and they say wow north dakota i've never met anybody from there <laughs> the whole being in the north but being south dakota just does not make any sense <laughs> So <laughs> we're not North Dakota. There are four senators. Take that. Who's the, who's the, who's the dumb one now? <laughs> We've got four senators in our two states. So and a total of <laughs> 1.5 million people. <laughs> oh, oh <laughs> I'm sure you get the I know somebody from South Dakota. I'm sure you get yeah. that all the time. Uh no, I get never? I've never met anybody from South Dakota oh. before. <laughs> And by the way, if they do know somebody from South Dakota, there's about a 50% chance that I do know them. Let me, let me give you a second fun fact, just because this podcast is going so well so far. Um, uh, Let me, let me ask you this. There's a reason I'm asking. South Dakota's motto is the Mount Rushmore state. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Most people do not even realize that Mount Rushmore is in South Dakota. Yeah. Yeah, That's one problem. Right. Exactly. Okay. But. What was South Dakota's motto before the Mount Rushmore state? Oh, I don't think you'll get it, but is it with the Badlands? Would it be the Badlands? That would make some sense, but no. I have no idea. What is it? It was the Sunshine State. Actually, that makes sense because you get more sun than most other people. Exactly. Like 300 days a year, right? Something like that. Crazy sunny because, like, right now there was just massive blizzards. But it's just bright blue skies and that sun just just beaming down and going down to negative seventeen. <laughs> so just people, so people get confused. Do you think the Sunshine State? Well, obviously that's Florida. That's why we had to get rid of the Sunshine State. That's Florida. <laughs> but and you know then deservedly so. But my goodness, it's the the sun also shines when it's really cold. <laughs> Sometimes those are the days that you know you're in trouble. Like, oh no, it's really bright out today. <laughs> We're in a lot of trouble. So yeah, the sunshine state. People don't don't realize that. I didn't know that. That I, yeah. I but it makes sense to me. I remember trying to figure that out because I wanted to move to a place with a lot of sun. And then I learned that part of like Washington State got like 300 days a year in Idaho, and that makes sense. I am a yeah, little surprised that, a little bit though. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, uh, anyway. You won't find many people who remember that, but I was, I was back in a Sam's club in Sioux Falls about a decade ago and reminded our old flag. It's got the motto on now it says Mount Rushmore state, but before it's like the sunshine state. That was our official mm-hmm. motto. Okay. Okay. What else you got? Next, here we go. Next question. If you were a genre of literature, what would you be and why? Oh gosh. Um, realist Russian fiction. <laughs> so that's oddly uh, on the tip of your tongue. <laughs> like, like, like you thought about this. <laughs> yeah. Um the uh, the Russian the the Russian novelists are not for everyone. <laughs> but they the Russians have a keen ability to be able to tap into the darker sides of reality and and to be able to access deep 
human emotions. They are not romantics. I mean, Dostoevsky mm-hmm. is an anti-romantic. And so I just don't resonate as much with the typical, a lot of the American and British literature of some of the same periods because it's got a heavily romantic streak. But the Russians, man, they are, they're true to life. And um, I, I mean, I was very much influenced by my undergraduate studies in Russian literature and and just learning about the the prosaic life, the the everyday existence that we don't live in the grand sweeps of history. We live in the everyday mm. and the Russians capture that pretty well at, at a place of absolute horrific nonstop violence and pain. Who's, who's your favorite Russian novelist? Well, I mean, Dostoevsky is great. Tolstoy, of course, is is the master. I prefer War and Peace to Anna Karenina. Um, but one of my more recent uh, favorites is a 20th century writer named Vasily Grossman, who wrote on World War II and has become one of my one of my favorite writers. He's most famous for his book Life and Fate. If anybody's listening here and really liked War and Peace, you would love Life and Fate. <laughs> so just in case anybody out there is wondering. Anna Karenina is the only book that I've ever thrown across the room. <laughs> I got so mad. I got so angry at that book. I was like, <laughs> it's rude across the room. I turned a gentleman well, in Moscow. Have you read that book? Say what? Say what was it? Gentle- you say? A Gentleman in Moscow. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, Amor Tolls. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. Awesome book. Yeah, that's a great one. That's um, that's easier to jump into than uh, Anna Karenina. But it gives you a sense of the prosaic because that book is absolutely about this everyday life in this hotel against the backdrop. Yeah of absolute horror of the rise of the communists. So great, great, great book. Which is so weird because it looks as almost as if it's a type of our culture now with the cancel culture and what's going on in the trans, yeah. you know, anyway, we can get to that yeah. all day long. All it's right, well, let's get into it. So we know that okay. you grew up in South Dakota and I mean, you've given a little bit more of your background in there, but let's, let's talk about the book, jump into it. Cause our time is limited today. Why did you want to write a book about Tim Keller and his spiritual and intellectual formation? There it is. Um, there it is. And look at all this. Check this out. Look at this. Oh, there it is. That's yeah. great. Boom. I love it. I'm writing a lot it. of notes, man. Um, it's, good. it's a good book. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I had that author photo you've got there on the back, back of jacket. Uh, one of my good friends said, I always love that photo. It says, I'm your best friend. No, I'm your worst enemy. No. <laughs> I'm your high school. I'm your son's high school offensive line coach. <laughs> All of the above. All of the above. <laughs> so I took that. Uh, I was very proud of that uh, assessment. I wanted to. I wanted to write that book. I. I just wanted somebody to write that book. Somebody needed to be able to dive into Tim Keller's thought processes because. He, no one has ever taken that comprehensive look at what he was doing and why. And he is uniquely gifted at being able to synthesize those influences and and access them and deploy them. And just somebody needed to talk with him directly about that before, while we still could. Mm. My background has Mm. for 20 years, 25 years, I guess my undergraduate studies has been history. and. You, you have to sift through all these things and find out, okay, what did they think they were doing? Why did they do this? Got to piece it all together like a puzzle. I thought, well, somebody needs to write that first draft of history that says, well, here's, here's how he got there. Here's how it progressed. And that's, um, that's why I wanted to write it. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. 
That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. As you were researching this, what were some of the surprise discoveries that came out that you didn't know beforehand? I knew some of the some of the things, but I I mean, I felt like half the things in there I didn't I didn't have any idea about. And I have worked with Tim since 2010. I've read everything that is published that he's written and listened to a ton of the, ton of his stuff, but I still there was just so much that I didn't I didn't know. I mean, the, I think the pretty, uh, I mean, going back to the the home, one of the reasons why I, I wanted to get into the home is because you've got to be able to establish that before you get to his conversion. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure before this book, he's ever really and talked about. I had conversion. no idea that his mother was Italian. Yeah. Yeah. Italian Catholic and left the yeah. Catholic church because she thought it wasn't moralistic enough. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's a, that, and, and then went from there to mainline Lutheranism. It, it's just a, it's a wild, it's a wild story. And so you don't, Tim has not talked a lot about, about his conversion, not talked a lot about his undergraduate years, apart from a couple anecdotes in there and not talked hardly at all about his family. And so I wanted to, for people to be able to see Tim through the perspective of other people as well. And that starts with his sister because she's the only one who was there, uh, who's still alive, who was with him there in the home. So, and all of that, I hope becomes a pretty obvious backdrop to why this transforming power of grace meant so much to him, not just objectively, but subjectively. And I mentioned in there that he, he comes from this Lutheran background, his, his father's family, the Kellers are these German Lutherans going, going all the way back. And I said, well, Luther was not just somebody he studied and not somebody he read and not, not just somebody who's confessions, but Tim has that kind of Lutheran conscience in some ways. Like it's a pretty tortured conscience um, that came largely through the formation of a very fastidious home with his mother as the dominant figure by far. So that was at least what I was trying to, uh, to establish early on there. What's that a hold in the light of this moon? My mind keeps searching, but my heart decides Thoughts can be cruel, they're not mine to hold The space unravels when you let go You bring out the the mother, you bring out some of her issues and, and some of the things that she struggled with, you brought out a little bit with the sister, you alluded to it. And then you, you actually mentioned this in the book. And I heard you get the, your gospel coalition video about this. Cause you said the book's not just about him. It's about Jonathan Edwards. It's about Leslie Newbegin. I mean, you go through a whole litany of different people and you mentioned though, the high point was his brother's death. Talk about that for a minute. I knew enough to be able to ask. I mean, you you can just, you look at a family photo and okay, you've got a younger brother. What happened to your younger brother? I think I knew somewhere that background, but I didn't know the circumstances. I didn't know that he'd been living as a partnered gay adult, that he'd been, that the family was in some ways, well, just his parents were not really communicating with him about that. And so the, and it was only through Tim's sister that I was able to talk about how the family learned that he had AIDS. And not only that, but he'd been, he got AIDS from his partner after he had been teaching safe sex practices to other Mm. gay men. So, and then of course I did not have any idea about the circumstances of his brother's conversion in hospice or his parents coming there to, to minister to him for all of his, his final days. I just, I didn't, I didn't know about any of that. And I think, the emotional part of it is that we are, we're close with our siblings in a way that we're just not to anybody else. doesn't mean we're closer. It's just they have a unique vantage point, pretty unvarnished view of us. And they have a you know, kind of unique experience in relation to our parents as well. And just understanding that. And just to imagine what would Tim Keller 
say at his younger brother's funeral. That just felt like an important thing to be able to ask. And as it turned out in the book, I'll leave a little bit of mystery there, but it turned out to be more important than I understood when I asked mm. that question. Mm. I, I actually felt that was a, a really interesting insight into him and probably his compassion, seeing a lot more of his compassion come out in the book in the, against the backdrop because he was drawn into a world where you had one or the other. You were either in this kind of liberal camp or you're in this fundamentalist camp. And he was always trying to yeah. strike a third way, which is probably why he chose Gordon Conwell, because that yeah. was very the same Absolutely. type of the shaping of him. I mean, there's so many different figures to talk about, but were there, what are the, I mean, you had names like Barbara Boyd, whom I had never heard of yeah, uh, up until that have. moment in time. Give a little insight into who this woman was and how she shaped him. Well, Tim was certainly influenced by InterVarsity in massive ways. And it's interesting that I got my start at Christianity Today magazine founded by Billy Graham. And the first project I worked on was a book called The Leadership Secrets of Billy Graham with the same publishers, Zondervan, that I did this book with. And so, and a major part of that book was Gordon Conwell. A lot of people don't realize Billy Graham started Gordon Conwell. 1969, <laughs> just as, yeah. It just does, doesn't add up for a lot of people. Just not who they think of as, as Billy Graham. But what's so interesting with Tim Keller is that his life doesn't intersect as much with American evangelicalism as you would think. He was not somebody who talked about reading Christianity Today all the time or how Carl Henry was a hero or how he wanted to become an evangelist because of Billy Graham or that his parents had converted at a Billy Graham crusade. He didn't have that story at all. His story was, I came to faith through the community and gospel proclamation of inner varsity, which connect, connected me to the British evangelical movement. And so Barbara Boyd was discipled by C. Stacey Woods, the first North American university staff member, Canadian, if I'm remembering correctly there. And he was discipled by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Mm. So, so Keller mm. is clearly just in that stream of the Stotts and the Lloyd-Jones and the um, J.I. Packer and C.S. Lewis. It's the whole university mid-century world. And I think that just helps people to make more sense of Tim. He's been a little bit aloof in some ways of the, of some of the typical American arguments because he really is in spirit, a British evangelical. And so Barbara was the conduit to him of essentially inductive Bible study mm. and um, the whole classic university methods of close observation of the text. And that was just his foundational view of how to approach the scripture was formed at a very early age from this woman who, um, who taught him and many, many, many others to read the Bible through her Bible and life conferences. So you, you see him then get converted at Ivy while he's at Bucknell. And then he goes to, is he, he's at Westminster or Gordon no? Conwell. Gordon Conwell is next. That's right. Cause he goes to, uh, to uh, Westminster later and then to Hopewell. What's amazing to me is the book is not just really about him. It's about Kathy almost as much as it is about oh, him. Right. And, and what I was amazed about her, the fact that she was corresponding with C.S. Lewis. Yeah. I mean, as of what, she was like an 11 year old kid. Yeah. yeah 11, 12. <laughs> and then he died when she was 13. He was, she was one of the last people that he wrote. Which is absolutely incredible to me. I, yeah. that, I, I thought that was pretty interesting. But talk about how Kathy has shaped his life as, I mean, they have really done ministry together and sometimes she's in his shadow. But yeah. as you mentioned in the book, she is, you, you really don't have Tim without Kathy in, in so many no, different ways. Not at all. So you mentioned, um, mentioned John Guest earlier. And mm -hmm. one of the things that stood out to me about John Guest was saying, Kathy Christie is one of the great, is, is the greatest youth organizer in Western Pennsylvania. Well, I mean, first of all, how often do you have an older church leader identify a teenage girl for what she's doing there? Mm -hmm. Second, Western Pennsylvania was caught up in a pretty substantial evangelical awakening during that time. And I situate that within the, the teaching of John Gerstner and especially his focus on Jonathan Edwards, as well as, of course, more famously, R.C. Sproul and the Leaner Valley mm -hmm. Study Center in Stallstown, Pennsylvania, outside of Pittsburgh. And so to say that Kathy was the greatest youth organizer in Western Pennsylvania is to say at this time of revival that was spreading throughout Pittsburgh, which was this absolute Presbyterian powerhouse, she was the most outstanding Young Life student. Young Life was just this huge movement, especially at the time. Mm -hmm. 
that's Kathy before she ever meets Tim. And it's not a surprise that in Tim's first major, what would become best-selling book, The Reason for God, he, he dedicates it, if I'm not mistaken, to Kathy, to Kathy the Valiant. And then from there also goes through and says, hey, now my biggest influences are Edwards and Lewis, but I mean, I got to them from Kathy. Kathy's the one who told me as an undergraduate to read the Chronicles of Narnia uh, because she would, had been a correspondent <laughs> with, with the author of these books. She's the one who talked to me about Reformed theology and about Jonathan Edwards. And she's the one who steered me in these directions. And so, and I think that's true, not just in an intellectual sense and ultimately a spiritual sense, but in a personal sense, I don't know that I would say that they're a paradigm for marriage ministry, ministry, marriage, um, yeah, ministry marriages, but they are uncommon uh, in how close they are at every level, whether it's book writing, Kathy worked professionally in Philadelphia as a book editor, whether it's book writing or whether it's um, sermons or whether it's Q and a sessions or whether it's just, um, I mean, they've just been, been partners emotionally knit together. They, they spent a lot of time with each other in that apartment on Roosevelt Island. And yeah, like I said, I don't think it's necessarily a model because I don't think ministry marriages are supposed to look the same necessarily, but it's uh, certainly noteworthy <laughs> from a mm. historical perspective. Well, then you, you go from Gordon Conwell, which had so many different professors that you mentioned in there, Richard Loveless, Edmund Clowney. I mean, these are people that have had huge influence on his life. And and I was actually struck by when you mentioned, and it was funny because you call her Betsy Elliott. I mean, of yeah. course, most people know her as Elizabeth Elliott. <laughs> right. And you said she was really tall. How tall was she? I was trying to look that up. Yeah, I don't think I actually can recall that. I mean, there's tall and then there's also um, uh, posture. And oh, yeah, I think it's safe yourself. to say Elizabeth Elliot would have carried herself in a pretty well, strict posture. Well, even when you <laughs> when you mentioned about her talking about his how he really de developed his position on understanding of women and, and gender. And, and oh. you cite her walking around the classroom. This is Elizabeth Elliot saying, oh. I'm smarter than most of you in this class. <laughs> I've gone through more suffering than you in this class. I was reading this like, Oh my. Gosh. That was well, you, awesome. gotta you gotta remember the first, uh, the first introduction they get to her is not as Elizabeth Elliot. They get to know her Please. as Elizabeth Leach, the wife of Professor Addison Leach. And Tim is Tay, and that's why she's at Gordon-Conwell. And so Tim and Kathy, well, Tim is taking Addison Leach's class when Addison Leach finds out that he's got his terminal cancer has returned and he's going to die. And then they go to the memorial service. And it's the memorial service that Elizabeth Leach starts, according to my sources, yelling at the students <laughs> for not like for not seeing their professors as people who need our sympathy and prayer and support, but instead these sort of distant figures. And <laughs> the response I got was, we had no idea who she was. We just thought she was just this demure professor's wife, but uh nope. <laughs> it wasn't her. Wow. Sounded sounded like she was quite the uh you loved her or you hated her. There doesn't sound like there was a lot um, in between, but the, the Kellers definitely loved her. And that, well, they influenced, I mean, you could tell the influence that she had upon both of them that were at Gordon-Conwell. And then they go from Gordon-Conwell to Westminster, where you see this formulation of this urban understanding of ministry with Harvey Cohn and uh, several of the different professors, and even just seeing his love for the city grow. I, I, what what did you learn by seeing just his understanding of the city? Because, I mean, we can't understand him apart from the city. I think what stands out to me is that for the first half of his life, he didn't have any experience with the things that we would associate with him. Mm. Multicultural ministry, urban ministry, city center, global ministry. No experience with mm. it. I mean, he's a... He's a guy from middle-class mid-Atlantic Pennsylvania who goes up to Boston at this, you know, American school suburban location. And then goes from there to a small town, rural South or sort of quasi exurban, almost uh, South. And then, I mean, that's the first half of his life. There's no, there's no city in there. There's no multicultural ministry. 
egg that was cross-cultural for a Yankee going down to, mm-hmm. you know, a place where the fathers of some of his church members had fought in the civil war. And that's cross-cultural in that sense for him. But of course it's the same language and, and there's just no global perspective in there. So I think that was what stood out to me was that most everything we associate with him just wasn't there. shaped as a pastor and, and, and you mentioned how over time you you see him in like cafes talking to people he's just listening he's learning he's engaging he's always reading I mean he's always reading from the time that he's young how what are like you you even document a lot of his reading habits just as a guess total guess how many books does he read a year oh gosh well I mean you'd have to start at 100 I mean, the thing, the thing about reading books is that the more you read, if as long as you're reading within your genre, the easier it becomes to read. So, and then when you add that, Tim has intellectual gifts that, well, I just speak for myself. Sorry, present company excluded. Mortals, I, mortals I, unincluded. I don't, I don't, I don't have those, <laughs> I don't have those gifts. And so, you know, I have, a, I have an eight-year-old, a five-year-old and a one and a half-year-old. And I'm just thinking, Tim was reading on his own by three? Hmm. And, and, and you stop and think, oh, well, you know, he must have had parents. Or, mm, no, <laughs> nothing. They didn't do anything unusual that, 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 would, have, that would have done this. Um, they, you know, they were a cultured middle class, middle class. This is not an upper class family by any stretch. We're talking about middle management. You know, second generation or whatever immigrant, just, this is not, this is not a fancy place. You know, they had some, some opera, but that's the Italian background in their show tunes, things like that. But reading on his own at three, man, that's not, uh, that's not normal. Uh, so, I mean, there's just, so I would say it's not so much how many, how many books he's read. It's that, that he is sitting there now with pancreatic cancer, not knowing how much time he has left. And he's still reading. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just what he does. It's, uh, it's not only his hobby, but it's also his kind of distinctive ministry contribution in a lot of ways. Well, you see that in the book, the, the development of the reading habits, who he's reading. What, what struck me, though, is he read so broadly. Yeah, you mentioned that he stayed true. within his lane, but he, he didn't. He didn't. He, like, he's reading... I mean, he's talking about Charles Taylor. You're getting into yeah. Philip uh, Reef. I mean, you're Alistair McIntyre, Robert Bella. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. All That's these a good guys. Point. It's a good correction. It's true. Well, I'm not trying to correct. No, I'm just trying to understand because I mean, he's not reading about Japanese art. I mean, yeah. he could. Well, <laughs> I'm sure he, he did. Mako Fujimura as one of his yeah. elders, so I'm sure he probably so did. Probably he did. I mean, Japanese art. Um, yeah, I, you're you're right. Um, I guess what I was trying to say is that. If you're listening or watching this and you're 25 years old, that's overwhelming. You're like, I can't read that quickly. I don't know what to do. And I guess my message is simply to say, yeah, you're right. That's not going to happen. It's kind of like what I said earlier about Russian literature. I, I wouldn't have just run and grabbed one of those books off the shelf. I needed to have somebody teach me what to look for. I needed to be discipled effectively and what to understand there. And so it's just to say that even when Tim was reading those social critics, which is you know, forms the last chapter of my book. It's because he had James Davison Hunter, the, you know, the head of the Institute for the Advanced Studies yeah. of Culture at the University of Virginia. He's coming on the show, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, he, he's coming on. He, we've been corresponding about it. His new book that comes out in the spring of 2024. Oh, what? I wonder what he's going to feel like when he ends up on the show. Love it, Colin. He's going to love it. He's going to be so excited. Who, who, book, who booked this? <laughs> They're fired. I got to have a talk. (laughs) What's his his book coming out in 2024, by the way? 
I can't tell you on the air. I don't want to tell you on the air. Okay. I don't want to give it away. Right. No, I'll right. tell you off, after the show's off over. The he, off the air. Sorry no, I'll for everybody the air. No, 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 no. It's okay. I just don't want to betray anything that he's he's okay. shared okay. in case that he doesn't want that to go public. Okay. So well, I, I didn't know uh, you were best buds. I well, was, you know, that's how I roll, Colin. That's how we roll, Colin. That's how we roll at Apollo Swatter. We're just trying to follow the TJC catch the wave of TGC yeah, right there. That's funny. That's funny. No, I love it. Well, I mean, I, yeah, that's I, he had he had his help. So mm-hmm. just that's he would you can plainly see he was not doing this as a pastor in Hopewell, rural Virginia, with three young boys born there in those nine years wasn't reading Charles Taylor back then I was <laughs> yeah, reading I Puritan paperbacks back then so or um, or good night moon yeah, that's what that I would have been reading yeah. <laughs> <laughs> good night moon <laughs> <laughs> that uh yeah that famous uh famous author yeah so that's yeah that, you're right that just that's all I wanted to say was just his reading habits that the one constant would would have been Tolkien is that he would have been reading him for that whole life and just i mean i think what i say in the book is that he's never stopped reading tolkien <laughs> always always reading the, one of the parts you got me with and i had to read it the eucatastrophe yeah the eucatastrophe what exactly what is that like I, I read it and i was like what is he talking about i don't know what this is <laughs> well essentially it's that moment when all hope seems lost and then finds the resolution in there so it's it's the it's it's what well, basically it's the cross it's mount doom it's it's the mm. gates of uh, Mordor, if I remember correctly, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. you're at the gates of Mordor, you're on Mount Doom, and it's that moment when all hope seems lost that that light begins to dawn. And so that paradigm of literature is plainly built off the biblical pattern. And But if you look at it, it's not just the cross. That pattern is everywhere in scripture. And I mean, of course it's, it's Pharaoh's army at the river, you know, and then it's, and it's, mm-hmm. it's God's people. Like where are we going you know, with their backs to the water? We're all going to drown. And then no, God makes a way. And then Pharaoh's army drowns. In the night. It's that kind of stuff in there that Tolkien was trying to get at uh, of just the great literature has that moment where you think all hope is lost. And then, and what he talks about is the incarnation is itself, you know, these 400 years of silence, you know, no, no prophetic word, but then the incarnation is that dawn mm. of hope. So yeah, it's the, anyways, it's a, it's a lit, it's literary terminology, but it's helping to explain the biblical pattern that we see. It's all in our hands, this life of time. Let's give unto us all It gathers round each night, each morn We watch it pass and grow There was one part in the book that I went, have I been doing this? This is the part where you go from a reader to being involved in the story yourself. I found that I was drawing encouragement and I was drawing challenge. Like I actually cried and I know that's, I'm, I'm going to turn in my man card right now, but I, I cried because there was a part of me that wanted so badly to, I, I just see so, so clearly the lot of the future and how God has shaped him to meet the needs of our current moment for the kingdom of God and seeing how other he has touched so many different leaders and pastors and influencers out there and how God has used them in such powerful ways. But when he, he starts talking about preaching, he got into the difference between moralistic preaching and Christ-centered preaching. He, he mentioned that. And I found myself going, is that what I, what I, what I've done in my, in my sermons? Can you just for a moment, talk and clarify the difference between those two things? So I'm preaching next week on Daniel, Daniel one. And as I was going over that sermon this morning, I was thinking about what a great example Daniel is. I mean, Daniel's Daniel's a wonderful example throughout there of godliness, of faithfulness, of courage. And I think rightfully so when we look forward to Hebrews, when, when, when the book of Hebrews talks about the Old Testament saints, it says that we are to look to them as an example in our faith. At the same time, what it says is that they were looking to a heavenly city. 
we don't become like Daniel because we look at Daniel so much. It's because we look for the heavenly city that Daniel anticipated, but did not, did not fully understand himself on this side of, of the Christ coming of that you catastrophe in there. So that's what I do in there is I go back and I, this is a Keller, it's a Keller move to be able to do. I go back and talk about Jesus as the true and better Daniel. And I go back and I, and I look and I say, well, wait a minute. So interesting. How many parallels are there? Like Daniel is torn from his home to Babylon, but Jesus voluntarily leaves his home at the right hand of God, the father from, from before time began, he voluntarily leads, leaves his home, goes into exile to rescue us. As second Corinthians five says, became sin, you know, so that we might become the righteousness of God. So, so Daniel, Daniel is a good example of that godliness, but Jesus is the only way to actually deliver us from the bondage of sin and slavery of slavery to sin and death and to rescue us, to prepare us then for that heavenly city. He was Daniel's only hope as well. Uh, God, God's deliverance was his only hope there. When you think about the lines, then all the different things in there, it's only, sorry, our hope is not in the example. Our hope is in the deliverance. And that's, that's what I'm, that's what, that's what Keller's talking about. It's what he learned from Clowney. It's what Clowney learned from Voss, you know, on and on and on and on and on. I, I mean, I don't think saying that these saying that their example is a bad thing, but there's a step beyond that that shows that the example is not sufficient. We need a savior. That's what Keller's helped me to see. And hopefully others so as well. I, I, let's make sure that I understand yeah. what you're, you're saying there. So you're saying that rather than looking at Daniel as the example, looking at as a motivator, look at the motivation Daniel himself had I think that's through right. the lens of Christ. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's right. Yeah. So, so Dan, I mean, there's no evidence in there that Daniel says, I'm going to able, I'm going to survive here because I'm looking to the example of Abraham. Just doesn't say that in there. What it says is, that he's entrusting himself to God. He's, he's, he's trusting himself that there will be a salvation. It's, it's almost like the, the sacrifice with Abraham and Isaac of like, there will be a deliverance. I don't know how one way or another, there's going to be a deliverance. That's Daniel's perspective. There's going to be a deliverance. God is the deliverer. And that's of course the ultimate example of God delivers Daniel, but it's all a, a, a way of foreshadowing the deliverance for all time that God would provide through his son coming and everything else is this hint at, that, at what would be coming eventually. So yeah, instead of looking only, I shouldn't say instead of, but only instead of looking only to Daniel's example, look to the hope of deliverance that Daniel himself looked to. And we have an even greater deliverance that as Hebrews says that Daniel didn't even know, which is Christ himself. That's good. That'll preach. Yeah. That'll preach, Colin. <laughs> All right. Pass the plate. I'm Pass the plate. I'm confident. Head man. <laughs> <laughs> well, even then, though, looking at that whole part of Daniel and what he went through, and it, I mean, you can take it almost too far. And this is where I get nervous is when you say, okay, he's castrated. Well, he doesn't have any descendants. So Christ didn't have any physical descendants. You know what I mean? It's like, how, where do you draw the line? But I do like the fact of how even Daniel's life foreshadows. I mean, when you see the Magi showing up, in Matthew and you see what influenced them that they're seeking the star and you trace it back and it's really Daniel. It's just incredible how God puts all these things together. And I, that's what I really enjoyed even about the book. When you look at Keller's life and you see how, I mean, what do you hope that what you have seen and experienced, you know, him, you've engaged with him. What do you hope that people take away from this book and what, I mean, why do you think people should get this book? What would it do to help them? So all of us have examples. I'm using an example here, all that we, that we've learned from. And what I want people to be able to do is to see how the Lord weaves their kind of builds their lives like a mighty Oak tree. The core is, is Christ himself. It's the gospel, it's God's word. But over the course of our lives, whether we're a pastor, a, professor, a parent, or whoever else, we grow 
over time. And what we want to do is grow in a way that's consistent, that's healthy, that's sturdy. We don't want to grow in a way that sort of sprouts up. I mean, I, I kind of I describe it as a, a lily pad theology where we just sort of jump to here, then to here, then to here, then to here, kind of tossed up, you know, about by, by the waves. And I just think Tim's a good example of how to do that, of simultaneously, I think this is actually a way that many of us would want to be remembered. Go back and have your childhood friends, your sister, say, the Tim Keller of today is that same older brother who always looked out for me, who taught me how to ride a bike when my dad wasn't around and when my mom wasn't interested. He was, he's been a great older brother. He's the same person who was teaching the seminary students after class. He'd redo the lectures to help them to understand. He's still doing that today. Point of like, he's the same person. But he went from being that, that small oak tree to being a mighty one. And I think that's a good example for us. And at some level, people should say, oh, you're the same person in good ways. But you've also grown. And you never stop growing. That's what I'm hoping people get out of the book. Well, even, even when you talk about that, you mentioned how he, here he is walking down the streets of Manhattan reading a book and no one knows who he is. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, this is a guy that yeah. has impacted millions of people yeah. around the world. And I'm not exaggerating in saying that. Yeah. He's still though, he never seemed to get a, a big head. Yeah. Well, I think that's also because of, it's the same point that I'm trying to make. It's about the, it's about the beginning. People did not treat him like he was special. And so in one sense, he doesn't feel like he's special in a very human way. Sort of like he's still that wallflower at Gordon Conwell doing kitchen duty, reading a book with an apron on over in the corner. That's just, that's just who he is. At the same time, he's also somebody who's been saved by grace and grace alone. So I mean, we plainly see from the Apostle Paul, we, we, it's so that we don't boast. So if it's all by grace, and in one sense, you're just kind of that nerdy, tall guy who likes to read books that everybody overlooks, you know, that's just kind of, uh, that, that, it fits together in, the, in, in getting an accurate um, or just a, a realistic human portrait of someone. I hope that's what people see. They see Tim not only as a, a good example, but also just as a, as a, as a person who's got strengths and weaknesses as well. You do see the personhood part. You see the humility. I think that's the part that really came yeah. through to me. It was not only his intellect, which was towering. I mean, three years old, that's the second time I, I interviewed Van Hooser and he went to Sunday school and came home and asked his parents these questions. And that led them to go search for answers themselves. And then they came to know Jesus at three. Yeah. And then I, I talked to Craig Keener and he said, at 13, I was reading Plato. And I was like, <laughs> well, I was playing with Plato at 13. <laughs> Wait. I mean, crying out loud, you guys are making me feel horrible. Yeah. Like I'm never going to be a good pastor or leader yeah. or any of that. You just, you're overwhelmed at the immensity of his intellect and you feel like you, you're not going to measure up. Yeah. You, you just feel that way. Like, can God not use me? But that's not at all what he would want you to think. No. And I, I just, I just said, Tim learned from others. He, all these different tributaries feeding into one um, you know, one large river, don't turn Tim himself into the river, find your own tributaries, including Tim, that bring you the water of life, the water where you drink and you never go thirsty again, Jesus himself. So I can write a book called Timothy Keller. I can put his face on the cover of it, but this is the guy who spent his entire life teaching people about Jesus. So I hope that's what people walk away from here is that this is not about, oh, I don't measure up to Tim, but that everything that Tim has and has does is by the grace of God. And that grace of God abounds to me as well. Which is awesome. Yeah. But still at the same time, overwhelming. That's the part where I went, am I, I'm a really bad person. I mean, not that I'm trying to compare myself. It was more like, have I missed my understanding of what the gospel is? Yeah. for so long in that moralistic aspect. And I wanted to know more. I wanted to grow because I do think the culture shifts. And to me, he is that person who was walking along with the culture and showing how to glorify Jesus in the midst of a culture that's shifting all around him. Yeah. 
and th- and that's what I really, really found. I know your yeah. time is limited, my brother. I know you, you've you got many of these to do. I want to thank you for coming on the show. You know, one of the things that we try to do is we say to people oftentimes on this show, here's your water bottle for the week. Something for you to sip on is, is, is you're watering your faith. What is one concluding thought that people can take with them this week as they listen to the show, their their water bottle for the week that they can sip on? I think I'd probably just go back to what I said, right? You know, that, that last point, um, the waters of life or the, the water of, of well, I mean, I just think about the, the river of life at the end of time, the way water always is this consistent message of its judgment. But then at the same time, it's the means of deliverance, but then it's also the means of sustenance and provision. And that's such an interesting um, parallel to grace of, of what grace rescues us from, which is the wrath of God, the penalty due for our sin. Uh, but then also at the same time sustains us, but is also that which guarantees that one day we'll be sort of in that new Jerusalem to come. And so I just, I love what you're doing with the Apollos water idea. And it's got a lot of wonderful biblical imagery to draw on there. Well, I, I obviously I didn't create that part. <laughs> I yeah. mean, God did that himself and he's called it into being to be able to help water people. I mean, like what you guys are doing, I mean, you guys are planting and watering and we, we try to take a lot of the things that we see with Keller and he's been such an influence on us and yeah. the people that he mentions. C.S. Lewis had a huge, has had a huge influence on us and what we're trying to do as well as Lessing Newbegin and James Davison Hunter as we try to work through a lot of these things. And I, I learned a lot more just from a resource perspective on who to look at, what to read, what he was reading. I'm really curious, and, and maybe this is for a different time, but what, how did he develop such a wide variety? Like, who did he choose to read? I think it's eclectic. That's what I, I don't think there that, was a plan. I think it was just kind of the way his... Well, I just mean, stumbled just, on it? Like, oh, let's look up Robert yeah, Bell. Again, that, that, that all that came from Hunter, though. So at different times, uh, I mean... Okay. Tim was not just a self-starter. He had that curriculum at Gordon-Conwell that introduced him to all this stuff that set him on that trajectory. And then he had somebody like James Davison Hunter to help him with that. So, yeah, I mean, I think he's, he's just, he's a wonderful teacher, but he's also a student and always has been. And that's a good posture for all of us. Mm. That is a good posture for all of us. Brother, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a delight. I wish we could do it longer. We'll have to do great. it again. That'd be great. Sometime. I'd love to. <laughs> but thank you for coming on Apollo's Water. Thank you. Teacher and student. That's a great posture to take, isn't it? It's one that we hope to always have. I know that listening to the accomplishments of others can make you feel little as if your ministry hasn't achieved what you hoped and prayed that it would. I know that I definitely felt that in the conversation. But upon reflection since that conversation, I realized that was a wrong perspective to take. See, I was reminded of Francis Schaeffer's words from years ago, that there are no little people and there are no little places. God sovereignly has you where you are. And not every ministry needs to be big. In fact, most aren't. But God never calls you or me to make them big. We have to get through that uh, through our heads. I know that's really hard to do. Everything we want to do is big to validate who we are and who we think we are. And oftentimes that's just for our own egos. But we serve an audience of one. You serve an audience of one. I read a great book early on in my ministry by Kent Hughes. The title was Liberating the Ministry from the Success Syndrome. I needed to hear it. It's a great book because it, it, it shows that success is not found in numbers, but in faithfulness, loving, serving, sacrificing, and just simply being faithfully present where we are. You know, sometimes God moves in you when you hear a story about someone or look at events in your own life. And that stirring can be really good. It's important, but don't overdo your response and try to be Keller. See, I have to remind myself of that. I'm not him, and neither are you. His intellect is scary amazing. It's awesome. I don't have that. Maybe you do. I don't. I I can't get down because I can't live up to what he does, and neither can you. But the better reaction, I think, for both of us is to allow God to convict you through his story to see areas of your life. Not that you don't measure up to him, but maybe not measuring up to what God has for you where you are. 
As Colin was talking about Daniel, the idea was not that you shouldn't look to Daniel as an example, but you should take from Daniel what his heartbeat was, what he was looking for, and that was God's deliverance. That attitude, that orientation in life is what's most important. And that orientation in Keller's life toward God's deliverance in Christ is overwhelming and really inspiring. Look, Keller didn't get everything right in his life. He would be the first person to tell you that. But insofar as he points us to Jesus, that's going to be both convicting and encouraging at the same time. I hope you take that attitude as a follower of Jesus. That's what I'm doing. And our hope at Apollos Watered is to make much of Keller's approach as we seek to help you water your world where you are. We want to give you the principles. Only you know your world. Only you know the unique obstacles that you face. Only you know the people that you're serving. But that's what our heartbeat is. And that's what the Missio Holistic Approach is all about. I really can't recommend this book enough. This book made me cry. I'm just going to be very honest. Even if you don't normally read biographies, it's going to help you. It's going to water your faith. It's going to be an encouragement for you. It was for me. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping water the world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. And I'm on the road.